Well, uh, we are in the book of Philemon, but before I get into that, let me ask you a question, and particularly if you're a guy and you've been married, uh, let me ask you this question. When you went to make the big ask, was there any doubt in your mind of the answer to your marriage proposal? Did everyone here, I'm just curious if any guy went into the proposal wondering what the response was going to be? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, women, how many of you were surprised by the ask? Ah! <laughs> okay, Joel. No idea. No idea. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Marriage is such a huge ask. It's such an outrageous ask that that wasn't something that I wanted to be left for chance. There was something that I knew going in what the answer was already going to be because I knew it was going to represent all kinds of change. Um, now, let me just ask all of us, looking back, whether you're currently married, whether you've been married, looking back, did you have any idea what you were saying yes to? <laughs> Absolutely, positively, no way on earth. Really, the question that we ask, because if you think about what an outrageous question, what an outrageous request marriage is, really what we should be asking is, will, will you agree to put up with me for the rest of your life? I mean, that's really what we're asking, right? I, I mean, and, and it, or you could add to it, you're like, will you agree to put up with me for the rest of your life and I'll agree to put up with your family, if we're really honest about it. Um, but this is the kind of ask that we're sort of saturated with, um, but it seems like we should be more honest and have more integrity with the kind of ask that we really mean and add to it like, would you marry me and promise to be low maintenance and let the toilet seat lid just stay up? And she's like, yes, sure, uh, I will marry you as long as, um, you know, you can aim better and you promise to do your own laundry. And that's really what we're asking people like in this, oh man, you put the toilet paper on the wrong direction. You squeeze the toothpaste from the wrong way. And you know, all this. It's an impossible ask. It's an outrageous ask. But that's exactly what we're talking about when we open the book of Philemon and what the Apostle Paul is asking of, of Philemon. Now, here's, here's a great quote that I heard years ago. And uh, it was attributed to uh, the great German theologian by the name of Karl Barth. And Karl Barth said this about marriage. Marriage is the last best chance to grow up. Think about that for a little bit. I think marriages suffer the most because individuals have the hardest time making the shift of a pronoun from me, my time, my money, my will, my organization, my cleanliness, to we. 
And this is the exact same way when we enter into a faith relationship with God. So when we come into relationship with Christ, we have to assume and understand what we're saying yes to, that there's this pronoun shift that it, my life is no longer my own. I'm no longer the, the sole response or sole beneficiary or, of all my decisions. My life shifts from me to we. And I think faith begins to thrive, becomes to, let me say it this way, become most useful when we can make that shift and understand what Christ does as the center of our life. Now, um, it, coming to Christ simply means that my life is not my own. My life is now in Christ and for God, which means faith becomes really useful for others and for God to use. So over the last three weeks, uh, now this is the third, uh, we've been looking at this letter. This letter that Paul, who's in jail in what probably is this Ephesian jail in Ephesus, and 120 miles away is a church leader that Paul has led to Christ, and he, his name is Philemon. Philemon actually goes on to be a bishop. So I have all the confidence in the world that this letter was well-received and it was embraced, even though it was an outrageous request. And so Philemon is this aristocratic, wealthy guy, probably even well-known in this town of Colossae, where we get the letter to the Colossians. And he's now had this runaway slave. And he has this relationship with Paul, and we can only guess because 120 miles inland is Colossae, and if you go to Ephesus, and you've heard me talk about Ephesus before, it's a coastal town. So he might have been there on business, he might have had some flat or a condo, but he met Paul when Paul was in Ephesus for those three years preaching and planting a church. He receives Christ and goes back and starts a church in his own home. So he is a significant figure in this town. But he's got this runaway slave. And you get the impression when Onesimus the slave runs away, he's done something more than just, I want to get out of here. Like this, this is going to cost me probably more than a beating. It might even require my life. And so here's where Onesimus, who by the way, his name means useful, which is a great marketing name if you're a slave. I'm a useful servant. This works out well. And, and so Paul appeals to him because he runs and he finds Paul. Now, this is where Paul kind of gets caught in the middle of it. He knows both guys and he sort of has a deep relationship with both guys, but this is kind of their problem. And so what do you do when you see the opportunity for God to be glorified, a situation to be redeemed, a relationship to be healed, the kingdom of God to expand on earth, do you step in? You're like, that's not my problem. Paul, who is boasting about his imprisonment because it's for the sake of Christ, takes it on. He's now become useful, Onesimus, to Paul in prison. Remember, there's no meal program going on in the Ephesus jail, so if, you, if you're going to get fed, it's going to be for someone on the outside, if you're going to maintain any kind of hygiene or anything like this. So now you've got this guy who's not in jail, but he's tending to Paul's needs, and he's become quite useful to him, not just for meeting his needs, but actually probably doing his ministry tasks as well. I think there was probably more letters that Paul was writing but he steps into the fray by faith. 
not certain of outcomes. Can I just say that? Some of us are control freaks. We will step out in faith, and I use that term extremely loosely, when we are, can predict how it's going to happen or how it, people are going to respond. We want sure bets. This is not that. Paul takes the task of writing to Philemon and, and pleading with him the case to take him back, not just as a slave. Forgive him. Don't beat him. Don't kill him. Don't do anything. Take him back as a brother. So what makes that so outrageous is because no one in first century early Christianity was talking about leveling the playing field on social divides. What? Yeah, because in Christ, there's no male or female. Wait, you mean, but patriarchy is significant here. I know, but in Christ, we're all equal. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no slave or free. In Christ, we are one. This is Paul's message. And so he's making this bold, outrageous request of saying, take him back as a brother. <laughs> but what will the neighbors think? He's got a reputation to uphold. I mean, if some of you are Downton Abbey fans, you understand class system. If you've seen the movie, don't tell me. But there is this nobility, and I'm better than you because I have more than you. This is the same then as it is today. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. -uh. In Christ, we are one. And all of a sudden, the, the playing field just got really even. And so the first thing I would simply say, and we're talking about how our faith becomes useful. This is an important conversation for us to have. I would encourage you to jot a few notes down. We have a wonderful bulletin. I would love for you to take notes because I want you to become students of the word. I don't want you to just hear my words. I want you to learn to be able to think, if I come to church and he says something compelling, I want to be able to teach that to someone else. So be the student and understand this isn't just about you receiving. It's about you being able to share this message with someone else. Now, in the book of Philemon, we, we start to unpack what he's doing. And so he says, Paul uses his faith in Onesimus, who was seeking help. So the first thing we have to understand is faith is becoming useful for others. We talked about the first week how faith is useful in me. We talked about how faith becomes useful in us. But our faith is supposed to be leveraged for the benefit of others. A lot of times faith sort of gets put into this corner of, I've got my fire insurance, I'm not going to hell. I'm good. And what a low view of eternal life. What a low view of God's salvation. And so there's two things that Paul wants to do to leverage his faith for the benefit of others. And the first thing is, he leverages his faith to become useful for Philemon, who's seeking his help. But the second thing he does is that he uses his faith towards, or excuse me, Onesimus, but he uses faith towards Philemon, who's not seeking any help. This is really important. I mean, that's kind of significant, because there's people that I offer myself to that don't really want my help, and that's frustrating. But it doesn't mean that God's not inviting me to participate in some way. I cannot control outcomes. I cannot manipulate the good news of Christ into someone's heart and mind. I am not supposed to be a persuasive speaker. All I do is follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit and make him known as best I can. But that's the invitation. Now, 
Philemon's sitting in a place where he feels justified. He's been wronged. So why would he seek Paul's help? Doesn't matter. Paul offers his help because he knows he's got to break him outside of the cultural norm, the systemic sin that pop culture has said, this is acceptable and normal and okay for you to look down at someone because, well, they have less money or they're in debt or they came from another country. And he's saying none of that because in Christ, we're one. Um, Earlier, Paul writes about the ministry of reconciliation. Yeah. So when we look at the books of Philemon and Colossae, we understand that it's at the end of Paul's life and he's lived a colorful life. But earlier he wrote to the church at Corinth and he wrote these words about making restitution. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter five. So we stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Tell me if this sounds like a word we need to hear in America today. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. I would think so since you, like, came back from the dead. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Get this, here's your marching orders. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. You want to know God's will for your life? You want to know God's plans and purposes? You want to have meaning and substance? Start with this kind of general revelation that says, this is what we get to do as ambassadors of Christ. And this is frankly what the gospel message does. It takes people to the place that Jesus was, to the place that was a place of shame. It was a place of death. It was a place of enslavement and it sets them free because God wants to do something radically new. But to do something radically new means to surrender, to give up. So this is the picture that I have of Paul. I don't know how gregarious he was. I don't know how outgoing he was, but it's almost like this big Italian guy from New York. And he's like, come here, come here. And he's just pulling people together. And he's like, got, he's got Philemon in one arm and he's bringing um, Onesimus together in the other. And he's like, we're brothers in this thing. And he's not gonna let them stay that way. I wonder if there's families in your neighborhood that aren't speaking anymore. Two years ago, they were. Like, you know how family drama unfolds. You know how neighborhood drama unfolds. Maybe there's people in your own extended family that aren't on speaking. My question is, is God inviting you to participate by faith with the ministry of reconciliation? By the way, there's some really powerful words that you might just need to receive for yourself when it says that, uh, you know, the old is gone and the the new life is young, that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. I don't know if you live with that identity or if the narrative of your life is still shame, is still regret, is, is, is some kind of abuse, is some kind of disappointment. 
My point is this, in Christ, we get to begin again and again and again. We get to be born again and again and again and again when necessary. This is the beauty that comes to us in this new life with Christ. And so Philemon here is probably a well-known guy, and now he's been asked to do something unthinkable, and that is take back a slave. But not just a slave. Take him back as a brother. I mean, the book of Philemon is really just 25 verses. You could read it in probably 30 to 40 seconds, but then we're spending four weeks just peeling back the layers because there's so much that has to do with our privilege and our influence, with our class system and our prejudices and our biases and and us feeling like, oh, I've been wronged, it's on them to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe I did something wrong and I don't know what it is. The point is, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Now, here's where I I love to see this, um, and maybe some of you, if we spent some time around, could give this same story. But the reason Paul is doing this for Onesimus is because this is what Barnabas did for him. He didn't get this idea out of the blue. Do you remember Paul's life, then Saul, was was one of the greatest persecutors of the way of Jesus. And when he came to Christ, people weren't exactly excited and no one trusted him. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 9. When Saul, this is Paul, arrived in Jerusalem, he tried, so Paul, he, he had the road to Damascus. He was blinded for three days. He hears this voice called out, and now he can see again. And he's like, oh, I'm seeing the error of my ways. And he's trying to make this huge pivot, except he's got to live down this ungodly reputation of tormenting the people of God. Okay, imagine. Do you want to follow that joker? Heck no. He says, then he arrived in, uh, in Jerusalem, the center of this Judeo-Christian movement. And he says, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe him to truly become a believer because they thought it was his trick. He would do lots of tricks to draw out the Christians so that he could imprison them and beat them. So here he is. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some of the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. And when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. It's the ability that we can have to see who someone can become in Christ. If you've ever been a school teacher, if you've ever been a coach, if you've ever done parenting, if you've had a little niece or nephew, and you speak into them what they cannot see for themselves, that is spiritual leadership. Being able to paint a trajectory of who someone can become in Christ is what is fundamentally needed to be in this disciple-making community. We can come and just receive faith. We can just receive messages. We... But listen, a living faith, a useful faith, is when we're able to identify and speak into someone else's life about their God-given potential. And you do not need to be a spiritual giant 
to be able to do that. You just have to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is saying and what some of the natural gifts and abilities are. We need people calling us out on our blind spots, but also speaking to our insecurities and our lack of confidence. And here's what Barnabas does for him. And, and he stands in the gap, and now here's what Philemon, or excuse me, Paul is doing for Onesimus. Um, and so exercising faith requires us to see the potential of what God can do in a person. I believe that this is supposed to be the normal Christian life. We have redefined what is normal, and it looks rather passive. It looks really unconfident. It looks really tentative. And I want to nudge us because I don't want to just have a large worship gathering, though there's room to grow. What I want to do is have us continue to practice a living faith that has localized expressions, but it's the people of God having concrete and tangible expressions to practice faith, but also to articulate it. This is what I would call a disciple-making church, or what I like to simply refer to as a lifestyle church. Not just a Sunday go-to-church uh, experience, but something that is living and breathing and collective together. Um, I came across an article that I want to share with you, um, and I love finding this because it's stuff that you never hear on any of the mainstream news outlets. But your hope in Christ and your belief in the resurrection uh, is, the, is, is most useful when it serves other people. See, there's something that needs to be, you know, faith needs to be useful in me. It needs to be useful with us. But our faith becomes useful when we apply it to others' well-being. Can anyone take a guess where, right now, the fastest-growing church is in the world today? Would you be shocked if I told you it was Iran? And it was primarily being led by women. There's a documentary that's come out uh, that's called um, Sheep Among Wolves. And uh, I've just watched part of it. I haven't been able to watch the whole thing. But there was this article written, and I want to read just some parts of it. Um, because what we're talking about is a disciple-making church. We're not talking about a Sunday feed me go to church. We're not talking about something that feels really neat, easy, convenient. When you say yes to Christ, you're saying yes to full-time ministry. You just don't have the title of pastor. That's okay. But listen to what he says. This is, uh, this is an article. It says, for the last few years, researchers have credited the underground church in Iran as the fastest growing Christian church in the world. It has a unique characteristics that defy comparison with churches in America and in Europe. The Iranian awakening is rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that owns no property or buildings, has no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. There's a documentary that was produced by this group called the Frontier Alliance International. Many of the ruling class will still follow Islam because that's where all the high-paying jobs are, according to the film. What persecution did was destroy the church that were not disciples. Interesting distinction disciples might or might not go to church. But listen, listen to what he says. If you make disciples, you will plant churches. If you plant churches, you might make disciples. One thing powerful of the disciple-making movement is that it's obedience-based discipleship. 
It's based on the authority of scripture and every time you read the scripture, you obey it. This is how people become conformed to the image of Christ and set apart. They're not just reading the Bible for information, they're reading the Bible to get transformed. So when you ask people there, the most existential threat to Israel uh, is to Israel, and they'll say, Iran, and, that, and that's true. But behind the curtain of what God is doing, God is raising up one of the fastest growing movements of former Muslims that are falling in love, not only with the God of Israel, uh, not only with Israel's king, not only with Israel's Messiah, they're actually falling in love with the Jewish people. As a result of this, you have a prayer movement in Iran that is crying out for the salvation of Israel. I got to tell you, so I pray seven categories almost daily, and I pray for nations. And part of praying for nations that I rarely get to see any fruit from my prayers, it feels like they hit the ceiling, and like, what good did that do? but I pray for the persecuted church. I pray for the underground church. I pray for the church in North Korea. Uh, I pray for the church in Syria. I pray, I, I pray for the regimes throughout the Middle East. And when I read this, I'm like, what? Wait, are you kidding me? I, I, this is just fuel for the fire now. The film cites one Iranian couple, and this is what it was so convicting to me as someone who's born and raised in this crazy amount of privilege. One Iranian couple that had the opportunity to move to the United States, and after living in America for a matter of months, the wife decided she wanted to move back to Iran, telling her husband, this is a satanic lullaby here. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. The story was so disturbing because the... the the woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was a greater threat than the kind of persecution that happens in Iran. She saw that spiritual sleepiness is the greatest threat to her faith than the persecution. Come on now. Wake up. We got to wake up. There's something we can be doing. Like God's kingdom on earth in Austin as it is in heaven. I mean, this this is exciting, and it makes me wonder. I kind of wonder if they read Philemon, and I think Paul might just be proud to tears if he was to hear what's going on. The persecution actually strengthened the church, and it weeded out sort of all the consumers and said, no, we're looking for disciples who've given up all of their rights and said, I'm all in. I would rather go to prison than be spiritually lulled to a sleep. I get excited when I read stuff like this. I get excited about what I believe that God is doing and wants to do in us. So I want to do this. Let me just close in prayer, uh, and I want to just pose a couple of questions. So if you bow your heads with me, I just want to ask you a couple of questions as we kind of spend a moment in prayer, and then we'll go into worship. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work, and you are reviving the hearts of your people that you are sending aid and relief, but your Holy Spirit is, is being presented through dreams, through visions, through revelation. I thank you for the work going on in, in, in countries that we can't even imagine, but I believe your church is being persecuted globally while we sit here with all the freedoms of the world and being lulled to sleep. So I pray that you would convict our hearts and give us a vision to see what you see. I pray that you would help us see those who are hurting in a supernatural way. I pray that you would help those who are rich 
and still in profound need and be able to know how to meet those needs. I pray that we would become listeners. I pray that we would become doers. I pray that we would think of others in an increasing way. Just like when we say, I do at the altar, we're, we're, we're shifting a pronoun to finding our life together in you. I think it's important for us to consider for our own sake. How has faith changed you? Just let me give that some thought. We're all at a different place in our spiritual journey. I just want you to consider how faith has shaped and maybe changed you. Maybe another way of asking that is how different would your life look without it? If you can't discern or figure that out, faith will always feel nice, but faith won't always feel useful. It is critical importance to recognize the difference that faith in Christ makes so that it's not something we just hobby in. Lord, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. I pray that you would give us a glimpse of the heavenlies and let us see sort of the growing testimony of your grace and of your mercy how you're restoring our minds and our hearts, how you're allowing us to walk further into the light. Encourage the saints here tonight. The question I wanna ask is, who has spiritually helped mentor, guide, taught you? Who's been your Paul? Who's someone that you saw as further along and was willing to make a deposit in you? Barnabas did this for Paul, and now Paul is doing it for a runaway slave and a, and a wealthy slave owner who became a bishop and planted multiple churches. You should do what they did for you. Who is your Onesimus? These are the questions of the kingdom. I never want to be without an Onesimus, someone I'm just investing in, but I never want to be without someone I'm following. This is our rhythm of apprenticing, someone further along and someone I'm bringing along. This is a useful faith for the benefit of others. Our Father in heaven, would you just give us a burden for those who are living in the margins? Would you give us just a clarity for those who you've given us influence and favor with? Will you give us a hunger to be able to receive counsel and, and accountability? Father, would you just reveal the blind spots in our own life because you're raising up people, a community of friends and family, a church that wants to see us experience new life. I pray for the usefulness of our faith. We give you our lives and help us to found uh, in you. Help us to leverage our belief in your son and our hope in the resurrection. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.